Welcome to episode four of the Climate Money Podcast with me, Susan Sue. I'm a climate investor and a climate mom looking to keep up with the headlines and always wanting to learn more. On today's episode, we talk about AI's climate footprint, the changing face of nuclear, and the emerging climate subsidy wars. Last week, we talked about the $200 billion price tag for 2023's climate disasters, with most of those losses happening in the United States, actually, and many of the losses not backstopped by insurance. We also teamed up with Olaf Sockers of Red Blue Capital to discuss how one of Tesla's most important early manufacturing innovations is now causing one of its biggest customers to churn. If you missed that episode, you can always go back and give it a listen. But in the meantime, let's jump into episode four, where we talk about AI's climate footprint. First, another recent story that offers a little bit of important background context. So last week, the International Energy Agency just released their 170-page Energy 2024 report. Among the highlights picked out by the news media were projections that renewables are set to overtake coal as the dominant global energy source next year. With a small side note from me here, is it not crazy that 2025 is already next year? Also, that CO2 emissions from electricity generation are in structural decline, meaning that these emissions are going down in irreversible ways due to underlying structural or, in in many cases, changes to literal hard infrastructure reasons. That China alone accounts for half of the decline in global power generation emissions expected between now and 2026, despite major hydropower hiccups all around the world and including in China this past year due to, well, climate change, which has caused lower rainfall, lower water levels, and earlier snow melt. And finally, that nuclear is about to enter its renaissance era, with nuclear generation set to reach an all-time record high by 2025, again next year. um, The IEA expects 29 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity to come online around the world, with most of that in China and India, but a good amount also flipping on in France and Japan, which is coming back around to nuclear after Fukushima. Now, before we get into the most overlooked tidbit, in my opinion, from the IEA report and the focus of today's episode, I want to pause for a moment on nuclear. Even as recently as a few years ago, vicious fights over California's Diablo Canyon nuclear facility were the norm all over climate Twitter and somewhat in climate real life as well. But since then, the nuclear faction has made major inroads in public consciousness, California state lawmakers extended Diablo Canyon's operating license till at least 2030, last spring, and Japan's nuclear regulator lifted its operational ban on Tokyo Electric Power's nuclear facility, the world's biggest nuclear plant, back in December. At the same time, and not included in the IEA report, is that uranium prices have just hit 16-year highs, breaking $100 per pound for the first time since the early 2000s. Part of this price surge has been driven by growth expectations around the projects outlined by the IEA, but not all of it. Another factor is the more recent constraints around uranium exports from Russia and Niger. Quick sidebar here. While Kazakhstan is the world's largest uranium producer, most of it actually gets enriched in Russia. So it's counted as a Russian export, which is now under a ban in the U.S. Niger is also a top producer, and cost is a big part of that equation. 
In both cases, political conflicts, Russia's war in Ukraine and Niger's July 2023 military coup, are causing supply chain disruptions that are triggering a price surge. Now, back to our story. Now, even though prices are at a 16-year high, they're still not high enough to warrant opening new mines in North America, where market prices would have to be even higher to justify the cost of production. So, for the foreseeable future, the world will still be getting most of its uranium from these areas, which brings me to a point we rarely discuss in the nuclear conversation. As a climate community, we've done a lot of talking about the ethics and sustainability around mining for critical minerals to make batteries and power the electric mobility revolution. We don't talk very much about uranium, which also, by the way, comes from the ground and needs to be further enriched and transported on top of that. Niger, for one, has been accused of major human rights abuses, including hereditary child slavery and mining, dumping wastewater and radioactive tailings that then contaminate groundwater, and perpetrating land grabs from local communities. So nuclear surge means we get an opportunity to do better. With the market signaling higher prices and baked-in demand for years, we should be able to, and have to, find a way to transfer that abundance upstream where we need to push for greater transparency and much better processes. In the nuclear conversation, we often talk about waste or the byproducts of energy generation after it's already happened. We don't talk about what comes before the energy, which are the raw materials and the still very human hands that literally touch them before they become usable fuel to power the rich world's growing energy needs. We can afford to do better and we have to. And that brings me to my second story of today. One of the IEA report chapters not covered by media outlets was its discussion of skyrocketing global energy demand from data centers. Specifically, the report states that global electricity demand from data centers could double by 2026. And importantly, that demand is no longer just coming from the cloud computing revolution, but now increasingly from AI. The IEA presents projections where we add at least one Sweden, or at most one Germany's, worth of electricity demand from data centers alone between now and two years from now in 2026. And this is a trend that's happening all over the world, from China, where data center electricity demand is expected to double by 2030, to the EU, where it's already more than 4% of total EU electricity demand, to Ireland, where it will be over 30% by 2026, to perhaps most importantly, the United States, where most of the world's data centers are actually located. So let's talk about AI, data centers, and climate change. Now, Blackstone, the trillion-dollar private equity firm that specializes in being a landlord of everything from warehouses to L.A. apartments to houses in the middle American suburbs, just had its Q4 2023 earnings call last week, where it highlighted its 250% return on investment and counting in QTS, one of the country's biggest data center operators. Blackstone bought a majority stake in QTS for $10 billion back in 2021. Since then, its data center business has been on a tear, and the firm estimates that its stake was worth around $25 billion by the end of last year. 
Unsurprisingly, most of this growth is being driven by the AI boom, which has caused monthly rates for data center space to be up between 50 to 100% in some markets, which is a crazy jump from just three years ago. Quick sidebar here on data center energy economics. In a data center, 40% of the energy demand comes from computing, another 40% is used up by cooling needs, and the last 20% is from the operation of other enabling equipment. Most data center operators rent out not just space, but also power, so they're like a landlord that also handles all the utilities and monetizes them. In fact, data center rent is expressed in wattage, not square footage, because the power offering is so tied into the core business model. The data center boom is already putting strain on the grid, where grid operators are struggling to keep up and build out enough transmission lines to feed these power-hungry computer banks. Now, data centers also use a lot of water in oftentimes drought-prone areas like Arizona. They take up thousands of acres of open space and subsequently face opposition from neighbors and conservationists alike. At scale, data centers could literally change the geology of the earth upon which they sit, in this case specifically due to water usage. And they could also reshape the communities they're next to as they replace public use things like shopping malls with warehouses full of computers and not much else. But they do feel inevitable. Humanity has never turned away from the promise of knowledge and the allure of more, and it's no different here. And as AI makes cloud computing look practically analog, it is time to ask, what's the climate impact of this new trajectory we're on? QTS, the Blackstone-owned data center operator, says that 32% of its power comes from renewable energy, which is really good. That's like pretty high, with a goal of 100% renewable energy procurement by 2025, which again is next year. But how are they going to do that with grids barely able to keep up with basic transmission requirements for the data centers that are already up and running? As a side note here, there have been more and more cases of data centers directly or indirectly extending the life of coal plants or even ushering in spot diesel generators. In some cases, like the U.S.'s coal capital of Kentucky, Tax incentives geared at attracting Bitcoin mining rigs and data centers were specifically written to make use of that state's excess coal capacity that was originally built for manufacturing facilities that have long since been moved offshore. And it's working. Almost two dozen coal-fired power plants from Kentucky to North Dakota that were set to retire between 2022 and 2028 are now being kept online indefinitely. Now back to our story. There's been a lot of talk about how consumers driving EVs and switching to electric stoves are going to cause the grid to implode. But our projected growth in computing and also manufacturing of semiconductors and batteries themselves, which are often both inputs to computing, is what will really grow grid demand. But luckily, there are some good things happening too. Like QTS, a lot of data centers do have clean energy targets, and many are owned and operated by public tech companies that have to report and answer to public shareholders, many of which are interested in emissions reduction. Data centers are also getting to be the premier target markets for small modular reactors, going back to our nuclear story. In fact, a few months ago, Sweden just announced the first nuclear-powered data center that will use SMRs, 
that'll come online in 2030. Lastly, there are also some early stage technology companies working to, for example, track and reduce water usage like WaterPlan, bring online new cooling technologies like JetCool, or build new semiconductor materials and computer chips that could use photons, enabling the resulting electronics themselves to use a fraction of the energy previously required. Blackstone, as one of the largest PE farms in the world, with plenty of public entity investors like pension funds in their midst, could do so much here, and so much more than they're already doing. Even though they have an emissions reduction program that's aiming to cut the firm's overall scope one and two emissions by 15%, they've been pretty unspecific about the time frame for those reductions, and they continue to invest in coal and other fossil fuel projects. For as much as AI futurists talk about how AI will solve climate change, one of the favorite talking points on how AI will help humanity more than it could possibly hurt us, we also need to be looking at how AI might deepen climate change, especially as the emissions we generate today will bake in warming for generations. How do we use AI to lessen climate change today and not in decades after the discovery and inevitably slow implementation of some AI-driven scientific breakthrough? In my opinion, it's by using markets. AI and its builders are becoming some of the world's biggest buyers of energy, water, and space, which isn't good or bad, purely, it's an opportunity. This is the climate transition's big opening to sell into a guaranteed growth sector, and I'm looking forward to seeing what new climate-positive winners will emerge. Okay, our third and final story is a fun one, at least for a climate money geek like myself. Northvolt, a Swedish developer of batteries for electric cars, recently won European Union approval for $986 million in government subsidies to build a new gigafactory in the north German city of Haida. That's right, China and the U.S. are not the only game in town anymore. The subsidies are made up of around $700 million in direct grants and over $200 million in guarantees, and it'll be put towards building a new plant with a 60 gigawatt hours of annual capacity or enough to make up to 1 million EVs per year with production starting in 2026. The EU has recently relaxed state aid rules in response to the U.S. luring away European companies with all that big IRA money. In Northvolt's case, the company was offered a deal under the IRA, and the EU money was specifically granted as so-called matching aid in response to the U.S.'s offer. The EU's executive vice president of the European Commission, focused on competition, Marguerite Vestager, is quoted as saying, Matching aid is a new feature that we are using in order to make sure that if companies are offered aids in other jurisdictions, then if a member state is willing, they can match the aid in order for the investment to take place in Europe, for the technology to be developed in Europe, for the jobs to be situated in Europe. The Northvolt package in particular is the first aid ever approved to prevent a company from being wooed away from Europe, and in my opinion, it is a huge sign of the times to come. Germany's economic prime minister, Robert Habeck, said at a press conference, We tend to think in national borders, but this is not where the competition is. 
He's specifically rallying his team and calling the bluff on the U.S. and China, which I think is kind of awesome. We absolutely need public-private partnerships for the rebuilding of our civilization's infrastructure, including mobility infrastructure, but also everything else. And the U.S. has long excelled at this, and so has China. For context, SpaceX has received over $15 billion in awarded government contracts since 2003, according to U.S. government records, and is still seeking $885 million in additional government funding to build broadband access in rural communities. Meanwhile, Tesla has received so many subsidies that it needs its own subsidy tracker website to keep count of them. That website estimates the total benefits to date at about $3 billion. These companies are doing important work, and I don't begrudge them the help that they've received. Now, acknowledgement and gratitude are a topic for another day. We need more friendly competition between nations to onshore innovation, especially in rich democracies, and climate companies that are building the foundation of our new economy need to be working hand-in-glove with the public sector. This subsidy doesn't mean that Northvolt will be Europe-exclusive, since the company already has plans in Canada and in the U.S., but it does ensure that Europe will still have a seat at the table. This is so important because you can't be a climate leader on regulatory crackdowns alone. You also have to lead through generative innovation that includes real people living in local communities who now get to be part of the climate transition through their gigafactory job or because their town is suddenly a better restaurant market. I'm really happy that the EU is increasingly seeing itself as a power player on the global stage, and I'm excited to be courtside to the friendly competition that's about to heat up and benefit all climate technologies. Thanks for listening to Climate Money and for your continued support. Please subscribe and leave a review if you're a fan, and see you next week. Thank you.